Okay. Now we've looked at the historical significance of God's presence and how God is present in the Lord's Supper Holy Communion. Now the question, where, when, with whom? You're on vacation. It's Sunday, so you hunt down the nearest little church. Inside you notice the quaint appointments, the rustic feel, the presence of God as vacationers lift up their voices in praise and thanksgiving to Jesus. You didn't notice the denomination of the church, but they're having communion that day. Should you participate? Or you're enjoying your friend's wedding service. The church is beautiful, the music is moving, the vows bring tears of joy to your eyes. Then comes communion. Everybody's invited forward. Should you participate? Peer pressure might say yes. But does God offer any guidance? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. To the believer. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the tables of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. That's chapter 10, 1 Corinthians. And later Paul adds, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they might be saved. Two issues are addressed in these verses. One, one is clearly about living a divided life, the participation in pagan acts along with Christian confession. That just can't happen. In Corinth, it was causing other believers to stumble and weaken in their faith. The other issue talks about the nature of communion. In addition to being a personal and restoring communion with the real presence of Jesus, it is also a communion with fellow believers. It is a living out of community, an expression of the oneness of faith. Communion is called communion, because it has a corporate element. It's not just private. These days we want to individualize everything we do. We devalue community. The Bible makes it clear that participating in communion impacts the faith community. 
That's why Paul emphasizes seeking the good of others and try not to cause anyone to stumble. So when you receive communion with others, you are also confessing a common faith. And that's where the issue gets tricky. Are you compromising the confession of a faith community if you commune with them but believe differently about the person of Christ or truth of miracles or authority of the Bible or the nature of Holy Communion? Should you commune with other denominations? Historically, the Lutheran Church has said no. Is this to be snobbish? Not at all. It is simply to recognize that Holy Communion is a culminating point of oneness. Altar fellowship is the result of agreement in the confession of faith. One loaf happens when there is truly oneness based on the confession of what is true. Well, then what about those scenarios above? I'll hear two words of advice. First, remember to respect the confession of others, please. Participating in communion might disrupt the unity of another Christian denomination. It could. Second, remember to respect others who may be weak in faith. Your participation in communion in another denomination's church may cause confusion in the life of a fellow believer. We are called to love one another as fellow believers. We do not want to shun each other or be haughty, but we must remember that the distinctions we have do make us different. We must respect one another. Now, are there exceptions to this principle? Now, of course there are. During World War II, military chaplains communed all Christians who needed the strength of the sacrament. Mm-hmm. Exception. Holy Communion is a blessing, but it is a blessing that brings responsibility. Reformed churches non-denominational, Baptist, etc., typically practice open communion. This means that all who believe in Jesus Christ are invited to commune. If I am worshiping in a Reformed congre congregation, I pass on communion. I do not want to assume that I have a grasp of their teaching about the sacrament, and I do not want to presume that my participation won't cause a believer to stumble. I still worship with joy and rejoice in our Savior, maybe clap my hands a bit, but I try to respect the oneness of that community of faith. Roman Catholic churches practice, at least officially, closed communion. This means that only Roman Catholics should commune at Roman Catholic altars. The intent is not to be mean. It is simply to maintain the integrity of the confessing community. Lutheran churches practice close communion. 
This means that individual preparation for communion takes place and a common confession of faith is desired. The close part means that believers who are prepared and who confess our common faith are welcome to participate. The journey of faith is recognized in this practice. Close communion has a caring approach. It values the unity of the body of Christ and it allows for new participants. Holy Communion is a mystery of God that we carefully manage. It is also the blessing of God that the Holy Spirit opens to people and situations that we could not anticipate. Biblical principles and spirit-led exceptions are recognized in the practice of close communion. Now, what is the bottom line about communion and the different denominational beliefs? Since we're talking about differences, well, think of two, four, and two. Two, four, two. The first number two in, think of the Roman Catholic teaching about communion. Two elements are present after the bread and wine are consecrated. They are the body and blood of Jesus. The bread and wine have changed. That's why the bread and wine are locked up in the tabernacle after the Mass is finished, because they've changed. That is also why the Roman Catholic Church used to allow the lay people to have the bread only. If the bread and wine turn into the body and blood of Jesus, it would not be good to spill or drop those elements. Communion in the Roman Catholic Church or the celebration of the Mass is said to be an unbloody sacrifice for sins. Lutherans view communion as the presence of the risen Christ imparting his blessings of life and salvation. The Lutheran Church has held on to what the Bible says in verses like these, Romans 6.10. The death Jesus died he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Or he, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in the office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from, from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And 1 Peter 3.18 for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That's the Roman Catholic understanding and a Lutheran response to it. The number four in the title above refers to what the Lutherans teach about communion. 
When people receive the bread and wine, they receive four things. Bread, wine, body, and blood. The Bible makes that clear. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? In a miraculous way, as Jesus said, we receive his body and blood. But as Martin Luther said, the body and blood of Christ are received in, with, and under the bread and wine. The real presence of Christ is in you as you eat and drink the bread and wine. It happens because Jesus said it would, promised it would. Now the second number two, that refers to the Reformed teaching about communion. Reformed churches teach that only two things are really present in communion, the bread and the wine. John Calvin, a creator of Reformed doctrine, said, For as the signs are present in this world and are perceived with the eyes and touched with the hands, so Christ as man is nowhere but in heaven and is to be sought in no other way than by the mind and the understanding of faith. For this reason, it is perverse and impious superstition to enclose him under the elements of this world. Typical Reformed. Everything is about reason. Reformed theology states that the finite is not capable of the infinite. It is therefore impossible to believe that Christ is present in communion. This teaching is fairly new in the history of the church. One reason it was formed was in reaction to the perceived empty ritualism of Roman Catholic Church during the time of the Reformation. Martin Luther did not depart from the Catholic Church enough, some claimed. So John Calvin, Zwingli, along with other reformers, took the emphasis in the church off of mystery and put it on cognitive understanding and confession of faith. Disillusioned by hypocrisy, reformed theology oriented itself toward a rational and outwardly discernible faith. Some reformed churches went as far as burning church organs and artwork the first commandment was divided into two parts. You shall have no of the gods and you shall not make any graven image became commandments one and two. Before that, they were simply commandment one, seen as the same. Commandments nine and ten were combined to form one statement on coveting. This was done to reinforce the aversion of reformers to statues of saints and paintings of Jesus and relics. Reformed theology claimed that there, these items gave the impression of an easy, ritual-based faith rather than a willing and active trust in Christ. The Reformed leaders had good reason to react the way they did. Unfortunately, they went too far. Knowledge and rationalism pushed aside the mystery of God's presence and the life-penetrating work of the Holy Spirit. And that does our world no good. You see, 
the Lutheran middle ground. Good approach. Yeah. We are supposed to believe in God with all of our being, heart, and mind. Mystery and reason. Amen.